things, Father, we pray through your Son. Amen. You may be seated. If you take a, a look at any list of top ten fears, there's always some uh, common, common items that are on that list. Heights is always on that list. I am absolutely terrified of, of heights. Uh, in fact, recently I was working on building a, an outbuilding at our, at our house and had to get to doing the roof, and the roof was like steeper than I was comfortable. And so I had to get CJ to come over and save my bacon and get that roof finished. Terrified of heights. Uh, some of you all are absolutely petrified of spiders. I found that one of the uh, chief callings in my life as a, as a godly husband and a loving spouse is to kill all of the insects that may make an appearance in our house. That's one of my chief duties, um, is to, to make sure all the bugs are, are killed. Other people have a, a fear of needles. Like, ooh, I've got to go get a shot, and you avoid going to the doctor and come up with all these reasons why you, you can't do it. Just the thought of it. Is, or, or fear of flying. Fear of snakes. Just the thought of a snake makes my skin kind of crawl. Uh, not into that at all, uh, whatsoever. But all the needles and snakes aside, I, I think in my life, nothing has quite been as terrifying as becoming a parent, um, as realizing that I'm responsible to keep alive another human being and, and in some sense ensure that, that, that Timothy is educated and he can read and that he can function in society. And you come home from the hospital, right? This was just crazy to me. You, you give birth, it's all exciting, and um, they don't give you, send you home an owner's manual. There might be a brochure or two about, like, go to the pediatrician, they'll tell you what you need to do kind of thing, and, and, and make sure you, you don't feed them certain things. But otherwise, it's like, you're on your own, good luck. Like, that's kind of the, 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 the feeling you get and the weight of responsibility that you feel. So you leave the, the hospital with a little helpless human being, one or two brochures, and all of the well-intended advice of every in-law, cousin, and Facebook friend, and then a sense of complete ignorance and a complete lack of qualification for the task at hand. At least that was me. Maybe some of you all felt like, I've got this, this is going to be great. Uh, Not me. But thankfully, God does not leave us uh, to our own devices when it comes to raising children. Thankfully, God has given us in his word, inspired and perfect and infallible guidance for raising families to his glory. We're in Ephesians 6, 1-4 today, and it's God's word, God's instruction to to parents, to children. Throughout this section, you notice as I was reading, Paul is basically talking about what a wise walk looks like in our various relationships. So whether that's the marriage relationship between husbands and wives, and now the parenting relationship between children and and, and moms and dads, and he'll talk about between servants and masters. We'll look at that next week. Showing what the spirit-filled life looks like in real relationships. Sometimes we can talk about be filled with the spirit. It's real esoteric and mystical and something happens at a late-night church service and all of these emotions and feelings. It's very practical. Christianity wears shoes. It walks in the real world. The rubber meets the road. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, be subject to your own husbands. Children, obey your parents. Parents, teach and, and love your children and servants Be subject to your masters, and masters be kind towards your your servants. It is very, very practical. Now, I'm I'm aware of the fact as I get up here to preach, I'm young, and there's probably many of you here today who would be better qualified to give give this message. Uh, But listen, being completely ignorant has never stopped me before from giving all these opinions, so let's plow ahead here. No, I don't want to give opinions today. We're going to look at what God's Word says. 
Now, last week we started looking at these parenting principles that are embedded in the text here. Children, obey. Obey your parents. We called that the authority principle, that God has called and equipped parents to represent his authority in the lives of their children. Not as an absolute dictator, as in you have no accountability, but as one who mediates and represents God's authority. Parents, the kind of authority that we are to have in the lives of our children is authority that looks like God's authority. Right? Doesn't, it's not supposed to be like a Stalinist kind of authority, but authority that looks like the authority of God in the lives of our children. We exert our authority as instruments of his grace to bring our children to faith in him. We, we are representatives, we are ambassadors on mission for God. The relationship principle, we've got that word children and that word parents. This is really quite stunning compared to other ancient literature. Uh, if you, you scan Greco-Roman literature... Yes, there is instruction in Greco-Roman literature about managing the household, but never with the kind of relationship that is envisioned here between parents and children. There's a relationship that God intends. So authority and relationship go side by side. It's not either relationship with your kids or authority over your children, but it is both. And the Bible presents both of these, with God himself being our model. Our father relationship, which art in heaven authority, both of those together. The law principle, verse 2, quotes from the Decalogue, quotes from the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. Honor thy father and mother. That is the fifth of the Ten Commandments. Paul is not uh, you know, ashamed here to quote from the Old Testament law. Law has a place in the Christian home. Now, why does God give us law? God gives us law to be our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, to help us see our sinfulness, to see his righteousness, and to show us the way that God intends us to live. But we noted last week that law and rules and regulations can never change the heart. No number of rules can change the heart. It's not, it's not the right instrument. It's like trying to use a sledgehammer when you need a chisel. It's like using a chainsaw when you need a scalpel. It's the wrong tool. So law has a place, but it can't change the heart. And then we finished off last week with the promise principle, which is the first commandment with promise. It's interesting that Paul does not come and say it's the first commandment with a threat, and there's going to be consequences and threats and a whole fancy system of if you do this, then this will happen. Now, there is a place for discipline. We're going to talk about that today. But Paul appeals to the promise. He sets the promise before Christian children to say, believe the promises of God. Promises motivate obedience only if they are believed, which means, parents, the call here is for us to call our children to faith. Now, we pick up in verse 4, and really the rest of our principles are, are embedded here in verse 4. So we come up with our, fit, our, our fifth principle for parenting that is God-inspired, and it is true. We're going to call this the teamwork principle. Now, notice verse 4, the, the, the address, and ye fathers, ye fathers. Now, back in verse 1, we had the term parents, and in verse 2, we had father and mother, and then here we get fathers, and they are distinct Greek words, okay? This is not interchangeable with what he's talking about with mom and dad. There's a unique role that God has for fathers and a unique role God has for mothers, but it takes the entire team to bring God glory and to do this his way. Both mom and dad have a role to play. So the focus here shifts to fathers. Why? Because God, just as he has called husbands to be the head in the marriage, he has called fathers to be the leader in the home. Dad is like the team captain. Uh, you know, some sports will have a team captain. He takes the field with the rest of the team. He might be playing shortstop on the New York Yankees, or he might be the quarterback. He's a player on the field, but he's got a leadership role. He's like a player coach. 
he's specifically addressed. Dad is specifically addressed in verse 4. Not because mom has no role to play. It's not, okay, dads, you've got the role of raising the kids. Mom is just going to go to Target and drink lattes at Starbucks all day. No, it's that each has a role to play. And the father, as the God-ordained head of the home, is given the ultimate responsibility. He is to be the leader. Now, we, we touched on this back a few weeks ago when we were looking at marriage in Ephesians 5. This is not simply arbitrary. It's not just that, well, men are physically stronger than women, and therefore they can just sort of exert their rule and have authority and control. That's not what this is about. It's not about control. It's not about selfish, the selfish exercise of power. This is rooted in the creation order. Husbandly headship in the home exists before the fall, according to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We see Adam in the Garden of Eden leading his home before the fall came along. Now, sin twists and perverts what God intended in the creation. But nonetheless, authority and leadership is a good thing. We live in an anti-authoritarian age where nobody wants any authority, right? They want to do what they want to do. They don't want anyone telling them otherwise, and because of that, we get this idea sometimes in, in parenting and families, oh, you, don't, you want to be your child's friend and their pal, and husbands should just sort of be totally equal and just reciprocal. The Bible does call men to lead in their homes, not to dominate, not to domineer, but to lead. Now, leadership biblically means provision. Leadership biblically means you're going to provide protection, whether that is physical protection for your family, whether that is emotional protection of shielding them, if that, and then it also includes spiritual protection. So that's ironic on a Mother's Day sermon that I'm speaking to fathers. But fathers, God expects you to lead. God has given you the responsibility to lead your home. Too many men have walked off the field and relinquished that responsibility to say, well, Mom takes the kids to church. I'm going to go fishing today. Mom's going to do devotions with the kids, but I'm going to watch TV instead. If you are doing that, you are sinning. It is your job to take the leadership. Now, it doesn't mean you do everything, but you lead. When fathers and husbands walk off the proverbial field, they expect their wives to play positions they simply weren't equipped to play. Simply working to provide is not enough. A lot of men believe, well, I work 50 hours a week. That's my responsibility. I've done that. So when I come home, I don't want to be bothered, and I don't want to, you know, to, to be... Uh, inconvenienced in any way. No, that is your time to lead. Hands-on involvement is required here. So ye fathers, unique role. Now, it implies there is a role for the mothers. Back in verse 1, children obey your parents, which means both mom and dad are exercising authority. Honor thy father and mother. Each has a unique role to play. So while verse 4 does not mention mothers, verse 2 does. And it's assumed that mom and dad are on the same team, running the ball in the same direction. There's that famous football game where the guy ran the ball the wrong way, and everybody's like, no. Sometimes parents can be that way, where mom and dad are at cross purposes with each other. What this calls for is for mom and dad to be on the same team, knowing which direction the football is going to be moving, knowing which way you're going to be running the bases, knowing what the game plan is means we need to have a shared family mission to glorify God. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, God created Eve for Adam. So she's to be a help meet, okay, two separate words, a helper who is suitable. That's another way to translate it, maybe a clearer way to understand that. She used to be a suitable helper, to be a teammate who, 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 who helps the husband and the father lead the home. So you can think of it in the sports analogy Having a pitcher is really important, but if there's no catcher, 
That game is not going to go well. You need both the pitcher and the catcher. You need both team, teammates playing their assigned positions. Dads are not to lead alone. So mom, God has given you the task of assisting your husband in leading the home, of bringing up the children, of teaching them the truth. We've read Proverbs 31. What a beautiful portrait of the virtuous woman. She's working and she is engaged in, in managing the affairs of the household. Titus 2 has this, this phrase that she is to be a keeper of the home. Uh, not keeper at home. doesn't mean that mom just stays at home all the time and never leaves. But the one who manages and really runs the household is an amazing responsibility. It implies the skill and it imp- implies authority. It implies ability. So God calls mom and dad to lead together. Quite often the way this works out and has worked out in most places in history is, is dad is the one who is primarily the breadwinner and mom is primarily the one who is the, the nurturer. And I think that is good. That is good. It doesn't forbid working outside of the home, of course. But it does expect parents to raise their kids. Verse 4 has this, this verb, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Notice it does not say send them off to be brought up in the nurture and admission. But parents, it's your responsibility, your calling, our calling to raise our kids is not someone else's. It's not the Christian school's job to raise your kid. It's not the public school's job to raise your kid. It's not the daycare's job to raise your kids. It's not even Cloverleaf Baptist Church's job to raise your kids. It's your job. And you may call in reinforcements and you may delegate out some tasks, but responsibility falls on you. It's a lot of anger today. Oh, look what the schools are doing to our kids. No, God would lay the responsibility at the feet of parents who walked off the field. Teamwork. Your kids need involved parents in their lives. And by the way, they need that more than a two-income lifestyle. I think all too often we have bowed before the idol of a certain standard of living and says, both we're going to be working so much that we never raise our kids. Could it be that the idol of materialism and the idol of a certain standard of living has gotten our priorities out of whack. Just something to think about, something to consider. But a sixth principle that we have in this text, ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. Okay, so provoke not to wrath. It's one word in the Greek, the, the idea, don't, don't cause them to be angry. This is, this is reminding us that fathers have enormous influence in the lives of their children. The dads, what you do or don't do can result in your children either wanting to be more godly or becoming resentful and withdrawn. And the parallel in Colossians says don't embitter them. You can do, or, or don't just discourage them, rather. You can, you can parent in such a way that leaves your children discouraged and frustrated and feeling like, I can never measure up to these, the, the perfection and, the, and I'm always going to get criticized and They walk away discouraged and and angry. I'm going to call this the consistency principle because I want to touch on sort of one aspect of that. I think one of the easiest ways to provoke your children to anger is inconsistency. When the expectations are inconsistent, the result can be anger and discouragement. Parents can very easily discourage and frustrate and anger their children. Now, by the way, this does not mean that if your kids get angry, it's always your fault. Oftentimes, kids get angry because they don't like being told what to do, and they have a sinful, fallen nature. But there are things that as parents we can do where we're not being obedient to God that does result in provoking them to anger and make it harder for them doing what is right. So when expectations are not consistent, when you flip-flop every other day, you might scold one day for spilled milk but laugh the next at flagrant disobedience, this is going to provoke anger and confusion. 
when parents flip-flop on what they'll tolerate, when you will allow disobedience 46 times, they come here, come here, come here, come here, and then the 47th time to explode in rage at your child, where, where there's no consistency and they don't know where the line is, and the, the, only, the only line on how mom and dad respond to discipline is their mood that day, it's going to provoke to anger. Children will be left confused and hurt and resentful when expectations are unreasonable. If parents are consistently demanding kids do things beyond their ability, beyond their age, they'll be left with seething resentment. Also, the idea of consistent treatment. You can read the Old Testament, and one of the things you will see in the Old Testament, specifically with the life of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, is you see the horrible fruits of favoritism. So you've got Isaac and Ishmael. And, and, and favoritism going on with that. And then you have Jacob and, and Esau, and Jacob has to flee because of the favoritism and one parent with the, one of the children playing them off against each other and the children against the parents. And then you see it particularly in the, the life uh, of the 12 sons of Jacob with, this, with Joseph. Joseph's the favorite son. He gets special clothes. It creates resentment in the hearts of the other, the other sons, and they sinfully try to get rid of Joseph, and we know how that story goes on, how God redeems that. And, of course, the, Joseph's brothers are absolutely responsible for what they did, but wonder how the story could have been different if Jacob had not given into the impulse to play favorites and be like, well, he's the favorite kid, and we're going to treat Joseph differently than the others, and everybody knows it. Consistent treatment, don't play favorites. We see Isaac preferring Jacob and Rebecca, Rebecca or, or Isaac preferring Esau and Rebecca preferring Jacob, Jacob preferring Joseph, and families that were absolutely dysfunctional and destroyed as a result. Now, that doesn't mean every child gets treated exactly the same. One of the beauties of parenting is you get to encounter like this amazing unique personality that every child has. And it's not just a carbon copy of mom or a carbon copy of dad. It's not even a mixture of the two sometimes. And it's right to respond to these different personalities and different strengths and treating boys differently and girls differently. I saw a really uh, fun video floating around Twitter this week. There's a dad, he's playing with his boys, and he's taking them and throwing them all over the place. And, and they're just having a good time wrestling. And then the little girl comes along and he picks her up very gently and then grabs the boys and is throwing them around. God made boys and girls differently, and we should treat them as such. When I say consistent treatment, I mean... Don't play favorites. Don't be unfair. Don't let one get away with what another one would be punished for. Consistent kindness. Provoke not your children to to wrath. I think probably one of the things that Paul has in mind was what was common in the Greco-Roman world. Harsh discipline. Discouraging words, belittling, abuse. We've heard stories of people who Their dad told them when they were little, you'll never amount to anything, or you'll be terrible at this, or terrible at that, and those words lasted with them for a lifetime. The words of an enemy can be quickly forgotten, but the words of a father are not. Children will build their lives on the steel scaffolding of throwaway comments. So if you're offering consistent or constant criticism but no praise, you'll fuel resentment like wind to a forest fire. When you nitpick an imperfectly cleaned room without noticing the eager obedience of the child who did his best, if you show no interest in their Lego project or celebrate their well-earned C+, they're going to be frustrated. Now, it doesn't mean this whole, my child is amazing no matter what he does and everybody gets a participation trophy, but where you see consistent obedience and a desire to please God, praise it. 
Ridicule never, ever motivated affection or obedience. Now, here's what we do as parents, and I'm already finding myself becoming guilty of this. In our fallen state, we grab the nearest tool at hand. And one of the tools we often will grab in our parenting is try to use nagging or or shaming or comparing to try to spur our recalcitrant children into obedience. But the reality is your children will long remember the humiliating sting of being punished in front of others. They'll forever remember the comments where you say, well, if you would just obey like Susie over here, then look look at her or look at this one over here. It's not how God calls us to obey. It not, should not be the way that we who are made in his image should call our children to obey. They'll remember constantly being compared to the Jones boy or the Smith girl. So have kindness in the way we discipline. It means never disciplining in anger, but first getting control of ourselves before we confront sin. A sure way to provoke your children to anger is to be angry yourself. It means in the words back over a page in Ephesians 4, verse 29, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, belittling or abusive language. Verse 31, let all bitterness, let all wrath, let all anger, let all clamor, that's yelling, be put away from you with all malice. Yelling at your children is sinful, according to Ephesians 4, 31, and a sure way to provoke them to anger. Anger begets anger, and harsh discipline and angry words are the seeds of resentment that will grow into the weeds of rebellion. Probably a true statement that many a teenage rebel was once a belittled child. Bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. This is calling for consistent love. You watch kids how eagerly they want their parents' approval. We have to take Timothy out of the service before I preach because I get him he's like, there's daddy, and he wants to, boom, just looking for daddy and a hug and, and approval. It's a wonderful thing that God has given. Which means one of the greatest gifts parents can give is simply their presence, being involved in their children and consistently being there. Don't provoke them to anger. Maybe another way we provoke to anger is by being the helicopter parents, right? We've heard about the helicopter parents, the hovering and the controlling and the, and the smothering. We're called to protect our kids, but we're also called to trust God. Um, we can be so afraid of the world that we, with well-intentioned and loving desires, become controlling. And the reason why overprotection will never work is because the greatest danger in any heart is not the culture around us, but the sin within us, the depravity in our own hearts. And no amount of control will do that. It's interesting, during the Civil War, so many of the casualties during the Civil War were not battlefield casualties. They, rather, they, it was disease that would run through the Union and Confederate camps because of like unsanitary conditions. It took a lot of lives. But one of the interesting things I learned is a lot of those who succumbed to disease within the camps were the kids from the farms, the kids from out in the countryside. Here's the reason. The, the kids who grew up in the city, they went off to fight. They had already, their immune systems had already been exposed and therefore had built up strength against those diseases. Where the kids who had lived out on the farm away from people, they had no immune system to withstand these diseases that other people could withstand. I think there's a lesson in there. Overprotected children will often become undiscerning adults. The goal of parenting is not to make every decision, but to teach your children to make their own decisions. 
So if we teach, if we treat teenagers like toddlers and adolescents like infants, we're going to provoke them to wrath and prepare them for rebellion. Just some suggestions from provoke them not to wrath. Our goal as parents is not to raise our kids to stay with us forever, but to raise them to walk with Jesus. Psalm 127 compares children to arrows in a a quiver. The point of having arrows is not to keep them in the quiver, but is to shoot them out of the quiver and prepare them to live life for God. So provoke them not to wrath. Consistency, consistently trusting God to do in the lives of our children what we can't do ourselves. Consistently trusting God to protect them and recognizing that I'm not God and I don't have the ability to do all of that. But let's move on to his seventh principle. I'm going to call this the growth principle. That verb there in verse 4, provoke them not to wrath, but instead, by way of contrast, bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That, that verb, bring them up, we saw just a few verses before in Ephesians 5, verse, uh, I think it's verse 29, that word nourisheth. Right? The idea of, uh, of nourish. it's more than just giving the bare minimum, but the idea of, uh, of giving good and healthy input. In contrast to provoking to anger, fathers are called to bring them up, to nourish, to bring them up tenderly. One person who's known in history as being very austere, supposedly, put it this way, let them be fondly cherished. What a beautiful phrase, let them be fondly cherished, this this growth. The picture of bring them up, I think that's a beautiful picture. The, The image that comes to my mind the contrast, the image of a greenhouse as, to, as opposed to a machine shop. So a machine shop, you're trying to punch out a bunch of bolts that are all exactly the same and precision and, and threading just right and everything just perfect. And if it's off by a millimeter, it won't work. Where a greenhouse, you're simply trying to create an environment where there's enough light and air and water and soil for the plants to grow the way they need to. Parenting is a greenhouse and not a machine shop. There's not a formula for punching out cookie-cutter-shaped children that if we do it just like this, we'll get these results. Hey, we're dealing with human beings who are made in God's image with a free will. We're dealing with the complexity of people who are made to be somewhere forever. It's not a formula. It's not a machine shop, but it's a greenhouse. And growth is going to look different and come at different speeds for any number of factors. Now, when I'm talking about growth, I'm speaking primarily, not of physical growth, but of of growth in character and growth spiritually and growth in maturity. Bring them up. Here's the thing about growth. It's not an event. It's a process. Uh, It's pretty cool watching Timothy grow physically. Um, And there's some mornings you get him out like, I'm pretty sure the kid grew overnight. But by and large, it's sort of slow and progressive where you're like, wow, he's not like that little eight-pound whatever he was when he came. I'm supposed to know these things. But however heavy he was when he came from the hospital, he's grown slowly day by day and night by night. Uh, It's like a plant. You put the seed in the ground. You don't see anything. You go out the next day. You don't see anything. Go out the next day. A little tiny green thing poking up out of the soil. And it's slow and progressive one day after the next as the sunshine and as the water and as the dirt does its magic. Now, understanding that growth is a process and not an event. Growth is slow and steady. Raising children is a long-term project. By the way, the tense of the verb there, bring them up, is a a progressive tense. It's an ongoing, not just a one time I brought them up. I took them to church one time. They're good to go. Or they prayed the sinner's prayer. They're done. Or we had one conversation one time. I mentioned last week, 
Paul Tripp calls parenting one unending conversation. I like that. One unending conversation. It's not just, I checked that parenting box off, but it's an ongoing conversation. Growth is not about one moment in our lives, but 10,000 little ones. So character growth, like physical growth, is not measured in days, but in years. And it comes as imperceptibly as physical growth does. It happens moment by moment. And all too often, and, and I, I think all of us are, are, fall prey to this idea, we want parenting to happen in a few major moments, a few major conversations, a big decision at summer camp, or a go forward an invitation during revival, and whew, that'll fix everything, or just once a week at church. That's not how growth works. Growth is not about one decision made in the heat of an emotion after a preaching service. But it's day in and day out. You see, sin crops up again and again, which gives us as parents opportunity again and again to to teach the gospel and to call them to repentance, to correct again and again and again. I spanked him already for that. Why is this happening again? Because he's a sinner and change takes time and it's a process and we do it again and again and again. It's like learning an instrument. It's like the uh, uh, Malcolm Gladwell has the 10,000-hour principle that if you're going to master something, it takes 10,000 hours of concentrated practice. So true in parenting. It's decision after decision. So that means we can't check out and say, well, I tried parenting according to the Bible and I've been doing this for six weeks and they're still misbehaving because it's not just six weeks long, it's 18 years. Consistent teaching, consistent discipline, consistent conversations over years and years and years and years are the keys to growth. Let me just give you an example. Go over with me to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. One of the great parenting texts in the Bible. God's speaking to Israel. He's calling them to the ultimate things in their faith and their, their, their walk with him as their God. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. So foundational confession. There's one God, not idols and not polytheism, but monotheism. He's one and he's a unity and he is a God who is, a, uh, is not divided up. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. And shalt talk of them once a week when you go to church. Thou shalt talk of them once right before they graduate high school. Where you have to have the talk when they become a teenager. No, shalt teach them diligently when thou sittest in thine house. Talk of them diligently when thou walkest by the way, when you're walking down the road, when you're in the car. When thou liest down, when you put them to bed and they're stalling, but then they ask the profound theological question, where did God come from? And when thou risest up, thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. This is talking about parenting not as an event, but as a way of life. We have this thing called cultural Christianity here in the South, which is basically be respectful, say yes, ma'am, yes, sir, keep your nose clean, and go to church. If all you're doing is bringing your kids to church once a week, don't be surprised when they reject the faith when they become adults because you've taught them it only matters one day out of seven. The growth principle is growth is progressive. So it means 
Having those conversations when you're in the car and they're opening up their heart to you, it means when they're telling you about school and what happened at school today that you can enter into that conversation, when they're asking deep questions, when they have their first crush, when you're working on the plumbing, when you have to correct that bad attitude, all moments in which we have the opportunity to seize the moment and teach God's truth and guide their hearts. Parenting, it's about capitalizing on bedtimes and road trips and meals. It's about the opportunity that sin affords to talk of grace. Sin's going to happen. Use it as an opportunity to teach the gospel. And giving the gospel is not having a sales pitch where, now children, I'm going to give you the the Romans road, and then we're going to have an invitation and sing just as I am. But it's reminding them again and again of the fact that they are sinners, and God is a God of mercy and grace, and Jesus died for sinners, and reminding them again and again to believe the gospel. A conversation that runs for a couple of decades. Now, I think what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 He's talking, he'll even go into 1 Corinthians 4 and take the analogy of parenting, but he's talking about planting and starting a church. And everyone in the church is all up about, like, hey, we like Paul, or we like Apollos, and we all have this little cult of personality. He's like, guys, hold on a second. We're just humans that God chose to use. So in starting a church and raising a family, the principle is the same. He says, I just planted the seed. Here's the truth, you believed it. Apollos watered, God uses Apollos and other people to, to nurture that so there's growth, but God gave the increase. He changes the analogy to construction. He says, okay, it's like laying a foundation. I've laid the foundation. Other people build on the foundation. They're going to be held accountable to God. But guess what? The foundation is Jesus. He compares the church to a temple. What matters is not who built the building, but who lives in the building. Now, here's the point. When it comes to parenting, you plant, you water. Who gives the increase? God does. The outcomes are in his hands. Because maybe you're sitting here today and you're thinking, man, I did the best I could. I was, I was fit. No, not perfect. But I've got a kid, he's grown up, and, and he doesn't really want anything to do with God. I'm a miserable, horrible, rotten failure. Maybe there's some things you could have done differently. If parenting is a machine shop, then, yeah, something was wrong with the machinery, and you didn't have all the right inputs into the, into the thing that was punching out the bolts. But if parenting's a greenhouse and it's growth... You're faithful to create that environment, but you cannot create faith in their heart. You cannot create affection for Jesus in their heart. You can create the environment that nurtures and welcomes that, but only God can bring about that miracle of heart transformation. So that's the growth principle. Only God can make growth happen. Growth is a process. It's not an event. Now he says, bring them up. We got these two phrases at the end of verse 4, in the nurture and in the admonition of the Lord. That word nurture is the word discipline. So we're going to call this the discipline principle. Bring them up in the discipline and bring them up in the admonition of the Lord. Parenting is about training. It is about getting certain habits of the heart to be in place. Now, we could divide discipline into two ways. Okay, So I say, I'm going to get some discipline in my life. I'm going to start running three miles every day. That's not about like punishment. That's about trying to prevent things from happening. That's about saying, man, I don't want to weigh 800 pounds and have heart disease and, and all of these certain things. Discipline can be preventative. And so much of parenting is preventative discipline, is training character. Getting past just here's a rule, do it or don't do it, discipline or dis- uh, obedience or disobedience, beginning to the place of character that is pleasing to God. So much of Proverbs is about training character. Positively teaching habits, cultivating character. Correcting is not just about obedience and disobedience, but getting underneath that to character, to motivations, and to affections. 
It's about training a heart to value what God values. But there's also corrective discipline. Now, we live in our days, uh, our day where there's a bazillion mom blogs and parenting TikTokers who invent new parenting methodologies every day. There's tiger parenting and permissive parenting and gentle parenting and unschooling and all of these different approaches to parenting and schooling that, that come along. And so some people say, well, we, you know, we sort of tried the discipline thing, but it didn't really work. I, I want to just pause for a second to say that discipline is biblical. Correction. And, and not, not the word punishment. I think that's the wrong idea. What happens often, I'm going to punish my child, is you're simply taking your anger and putting it onto your kids. That's not biblical correction. Biblical correction is explaining what the sin is and then bringing the appropriate response to it so that the behavior can be straightened out. Hebrews chapter 12 compares God to a father, and it says that God, like a father, disciplines his children. God as a father disciplines his children. He does it in love. He does it for our own good. He says our earthly fathers disciplined us while we were on this earth for a few days after their own pleasure, but God does it for the eternal fruits of righteousness. The book of Proverbs speaks repeatedly. Proverbs 13, 24, Proverbs 22, 15, Proverbs 23, verses 13 and 14, Proverbs 29 and verse 15 speaks of the rod. So what we would call spanking is a biblical practice. It is a biblical practice. Now, listen, yelling at your children, being verbally abusive to your children, being excessive in discipline, that is wrong. That is sinful. It is egregious. And if the goal of discipline is retribution, it is also sinful. It's just, well, they have annoyed me up to here, so now they're going to have it. They're going to get their licks, and that's not biblical discipline either. That is abusive. It means when you correct, correction is always paired with explanation and teaching to get to the heart of the issue. And then the goal is to restore the relationship as quickly as possible. I think that's one of the, the benefits of doing it God's way. You say, well, I'm going to ground you for six weeks. Guess what? The relationship's not going to be restored for another six weeks. Do you really want that? But with biblical correction, the problem can be solved and repentance can happen and restoration can happen at that time. If you correct because you are angry or because your pride has been wounded, or your tranquility has been upended, you're disciplining out of selfishness. So this discipline principle is say discipline is a biblical, a biblical pillar in, in, in parenting, of the, of the biblical, the Christian home. Not harshness, not anger, not excessive, with the goal of correction. But notice how the text goes on, the nurture and admonition. Parenting is about training, but parenting is also, this is our ninth, ninth principle, the instruction principle. It's not just about training, but also about teaching. It's not just the only time you see me is when you have done something wrong. I think that's why some kids will act out as that's the only time they ever get attention. The, squeak, the squeaky wheel gets the grease, and so the naughty child at least gets some kind of attention. It's better than being ignored perpetually for the glow of the iPhone. There's discipline, both preventative and corrective, but then there's also instruction, that word admonition. It's, it's, it's verbal instruction and warning and sometimes confrontation. Discipline is only part of our toolkit. Parenting is not just like when you do something wrong, I'm going to discipline you and we're done. But this positive instruction, admonition, warnings, directives, it's verbal instruction that's, listen, backed up by example. Backed up by example. Not the, hey, make sure you never smoke while you smoke through another pack of cigarettes. That's not going to work. It's going to be backed by example. 
The word admonition literally is the idea of putting into the mind, to take something and put it into the mind. How do we get this between your ears, into your mind, into your heart? It's not just I've said the words. It's not just I have gotten your behavior to meet a standard, but it is about reaching the heart. Proverbs 4 says, keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. All behavior is downstream from the heart. And what God is ultimately after in the lives of our children and in our, very, our own lives as adults, no matter your age, is for a heart that loves him. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt teach them diligently to your children. Listen, you cannot pass off to your children what you yourself do not have. You can't teach your children to love God if you don't love God. You can't teach your children to trust God if you don't trust God. So what's the content of this, this admonition? Well, it goes on, a nurture and admonition of the Lord. Now, that can mean it's just about God. Teach them about God. Or it could be the, the admonition that actually comes from God. He's the one who is speaking it, and we're simply relaying the message. I think the latter is probably what is going on. We, with the admonition we pass on is the admonition that has come from God, and we pass it on to our children. It's taking the truths of Scripture and teaching them to their children so they know the storyline of the Bible, not just a story here or there. But what does the thing actually say, right? It means reading this book in the home. It means teaching its truth to your children. It means teaching the, the theology of the Bible, Teaching them who God is. What a tragedy if children were to grow up in Cloverleaf Baptist Church with Christian parents but never learn from their parents what God is like. To teach them his attributes. To teach them what it means for God to be Trinity. To teach them God's names. To teach them what God has done as creator and as redeemer and as judge. To teach them who Christ is, that he's the eternal son of God, that he's truly God and truly man, that he's incarnate, that he lives a perfect life. He keeps the law on our behalf. He dies a substitutionary death in the place of his people, that he's buried, he rises again, that he's ascended to the right hand of the Father, that he's returning one day to judge the living and the dead, to teach them about the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, that he is truly God. That every attribute that belongs to the Father belongs also to the Son and also to the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is the one who gives life and he is the one who convicts of sin and he's the one who indwells and seals and fills and gifts the people of God. To teach them what it is to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. To teach them to read the book that the Spirit himself inspired. To teach them what it means to be man. Be made in the image of God, to be made male and female. That's part of the Bible's teaching and desperately needed in our world today. The the doctrine of Scripture that is most under attack today is anthropology, the biblical teaching of man. What does it mean to be human? Is it to be a disembodied avatar out out on the Internet? Is it to be someone whose gender can be conformed to whatever you feel like? Is it simply to be psychology that happens to be in a body that is sort of unnecessary and in the way? We need to teach our children what it means to be, to be human, to be, made, to be man and woman, to be male and female. We need to teach them the, the, the gospel, the good news that sinners who repent and believe will be forgiven. Which, by the way, presupposes you're teaching your children that they're sinners. If everything they do is always great, wonderful, good job, and never any correction, they will not grow up with an awareness of sin. But also teach them God's grace. If they never see you repenting, why would you expect them to repent? If they never see you trusting God, why would you expect them to trust God? It means teaching them how to live out 
their faith in the real world, not this make-believe world where everybody's a Christian and it's great, but a real world where there are people who don't know God and don't love God and even hate God. It means taking the book of Proverbs in hand and saying, what, what is a father in Proverbs teaching his children? He's teaching them about how to manage finances for the glory of God. It's about teaching them about uh, the biblical vision for human sexuality, about marriage, about relationships, about substance abuse about the kind of person you want to marry, like real practical stuff that we need to be imparting to our children, teaching them how to budget, teaching them how to do their taxes. All of that falls under a life that is lived to the glory of God because guess what? All of life is to be lived to the glory of God. Bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord that comes from the Lord. And by the way, when the book of Ephesians uses the phrase the Lord, I'm not just talking generically about God. We're talking about Jesus Christ. The one who... Welcome sinners, the one who extended grace, the one who taught so beautifully and perfectly, the one who died on the cross for us. Again, you can't impart it if you don't have it. Being a Christian parent, so much more than taking your kids to church, but in a sense, it's taking church to your kids. Which brings us to the final principle. Children, obey your parents in the Lord Real, vital relationship with Christ. Bring them the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Promise. We're getting this. All of this is leading us up to this final principle I'm going to call the gospel principle. Ultimately, only the gospel can save. Only the gospel can change hearts. We all come into this world hating God and loving ourselves. All of us. By the way, what's true of kids is true of all of us. What's true of all of us is true of kids. We all come into this world wanting to be rebels and to be our own boss. We all come into this world wanting to just fulfill the desires and selfishness of our hearts. It's true of kids. God gives you as a parent his authority to represent his authority, to, to break the illusion that they can be king of their own lives. He gives you the call to, to model this relationship so they can know, man, there's a father in heaven who loves them infinitely more than their parents ever could. Your children have a heart that they can't change themselves and you can't change themselves. Only the good news of Jesus Christ can change. Only the new birth can change. Our greatest call is to, to preach the gospel to our kids, to say, ye must be born again. Our goal is not simply to raise kids who will make good financial decisions and know how to budget well, though that's important. It's not only to raise kids who will be successful in their jobs and in their careers, though that can be a good thing. It's not to raise kids who will be good citizens, though that is a a noble endeavor. Our goal is to see our kids make it to heaven. The single greatest need your child has is not to be able to throw a football with a tighter spiral, but to know Christ. Who cares what their batting average is if they don't know Jesus? Who who cares how successful they are at the end of life if if they die and spend a Christless eternity in hell? And if all behavior flows from the heart, then what is needed is heart transformation. What is needed is a resurrection from the dead. And last time I checked, I don't have the ability to to perform heart changes or resurrections. Only God can. So our only hope is the good news that Jesus died for sinners, that God is on a rescue mission to save sinners from sin and rebellion and guilt and shame. So we pray for our children, we discipline our children, we teach our children, and we aim at this ultimate goal of them being brought to Christ. And this is not just about getting them to say a prayer to invite Jesus into their hearts, but truly trusting in Jesus and turning from their sin to him. 
about them becoming people who love God and follow Christ. And everything I just said is true of every one of us in this room. It's what all of us most desperately need. I don't want you walking out of this message today saying, i got some tips to be a better parent today. I hope we leave today with hearts that are aglow with affection for Christ and filled with thankfulness for what God has done for us in Christ and rescuing us and bringing us into his family. And as we engage in the parenting task, that we would see it as gospel work, as a calling, as much a calling as being a preacher is. So may God help us to take these principles that are rooted in his word and follow them in our homes. Father, we need your help. We're not sufficient for these things, but you are. Help us on this Mother's Day to...